to Rights Up Right Now, a podcast from the Oxford Human Rights Hub. I'm Natasha Holcroft-Dennis. Today I'm speaking with Julieta Lemechler, a judge at the Justice Chambers of the Colombian Special Jurisdiction for Peace. The Colombia conflict began in the 1960s and has seen decades of clashes between the government of Colombia, paramilitary and guerrilla groups. In 2016, a peace agreement was negotiated between the government and one guerrilla movement known as the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the FARC, as they are known by acronym. But the peace deal was rejected by a narrow margin in a referendum in 2016. A revised peace deal was eventually ratified by the Congress of Colombia. The peace agreement provides for the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, a tribunal created in 2018 to implement the transitional justice component of the peace agreement. Judge Lemitra is currently the investigating judge for the jurisdiction's first macro case, charges related to kidnapping, brought against former guerrilla group leaders. Judge Lemitra, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Natasha, for having me. I'd like to ask you first about the human rights situation during the conflict and post-conflict. Could you please give us an idea what kind of human rights issues the Colombian conflict raise? So it's an extended conflict if you count from the very origin of the FARC, the FARC. But uh, actually the, the peak fighting and the peak human rights violations were in the 90s and the early 2000s. As after the, after our 1991 constitution, which um, brought into the legal system um, a lot of guerrillas that had started during the Cold War under the, the ages of, of the communist versus um, liberal um, wars, some guerrillas did not come into the system. The main one, the largest one, was the FARC, which was a communist guerrilla that had started um, had been started by peasants in the 60s. But in the early 90s, it started gathering strength, um, military strength and some political strength, some territorial control. Um, it started financing itself through kidnappings of civilians and also through um, taxes or extortion of different um, different economies, but most notably the cocaine economy. So uh, through that, especially, it had um, enormous funds, and it expanded into areas that where it hadn't been historically. The human rights violations that it committed were, well, kidnapping of civilians, the use of, of military weapons against civilian targets, and prohibited weapons. There's a lot of land, land mines, and... Um, and the murder of, of protected persons in, in international humanitarian law. The Colombian army was weakened through the 80s. It was a rather unprofessional army. But in the 90s, um, when especially the name, late 90s, with enormous support from the U.S. government and also through 
also through taxes. And the army began a professionalization process. It expanded. It started. Uh, it used to be at least half of it was draft, but it began to be um, professional soldiers. It committed um, the abuses that army generally committed in during the Cold War um, through what in Latin America we call the dirty war tactics, identifying civilian supporters of the guerrilla or people who were leftists, journalists, or professors or students, and uh, torturing and disappearing. But mostly the most notable human rights violation was that as the army grew and it had this new um, staff or, or members who were now professional soldiers, it started handing out um, rewards for a body count. And uh, this eventually um, led into a large number of extrajudicial killings. So these are the most notable cases of gross human rights violations by both parties during the war. So a very challenging human rights situation then in, in Colombia during the conflict. Especially because of, of the extension in time. So most conflicts um, will last four or five years, six years. But this is, if, if you count from the very beginning of the, of the FARC, it's a 50 or over 50-year conflict. But even if you just count from the moment where both the Colombian army and the FARC got stronger and committed most violations, that's a 20-year period. So it's still a lot of, of time. And then as the conflict was able to move towards agreeing a peace deal, would you be able to describe the national mood and how things changed when the peace agreement was reached in 2016? So there was a lot of, of factors, and, and uh, you could describe it as a perfect storm um, around the, the loss of the, of the referendum in late 2016. So on the one hand, because there had been previous attempt in the, in the late 90s, 1999 to 2001, to negotiate a peace deal with the FARC, and widely it was perceived in Colombia that the FARC Use this time when they were supposed to be negotiating and when the then government uh, cleared an area for them to become stronger. And it, it used the cleared area to keep um, kidnap people, hostages, um, to exchange for ransom. So people, like the general population, um, had a deep mistrust of the FARC after that. And... Uh, as it happened, when the Santos government began negotiating again with them, the the line of the government was to keep it in secret. So there was a lot of secrecy around the negotiations. Um, and even when, when it came out that negotiations were happening, they were in Cuba, um, they were kept... Um, the public didn't really have a sense of what was being negotiated, and in the long run, that didn't work in its favor. On the other hand, um, previous President Uribe had formed his own party. It's a, it's a rightist party. Uribe was instrumental. He had uh, enormous leadership in the growth and professionalization of the Colombian army that led not to the defeat of the FARC, but certainly it diminished the FARC 
and took away a lot of its strongholds and recovered areas for for the for the Colombian state but he felt strongly that um the Santos government that followed the Uribe government didn't uh, respect Uribe's legacy and did not agree on the terms that that the new government had come to with the FARC so there was that and they and he was a very vocal critic as were the people in this new party the Centro Democrático then there was something else adding to the perfect storm which was this um, movement um, or a counter movement against uh, sexual and reproductive rights um led in Latin America mostly by evangelical churches more than by the Catholic Church although with some support of by some priest and somehow in this new era of fake news um they understood the peace agreement to enshrine uh, gender equality but it was presented in a way that was very offensive to ordinary folk so there was a campaign that said that the peace agreement would um teach children how to be gay or force boys to be gay it was very um there's a lot of disinformation around the sexual part of it then there was also the the FARC leaders did not really connect with public opinion and uh, seemed to be um aloof and unrepentant and uh, so all these things came into play but even so only 37% of Colombians who could vote voted on the referendum um and to literally add to the perfect storm there was an actual storm there was a, a um a hurricane in the caribbean and the northern part of colombia which is more liberal um there was difficulty getting to the polling booths because of the rain and the flooding so it was like quite literally at least in the north the perfect storm and the only 37% of the colombians who could vote go, got to the polling booths and the no vote won won but by a narrow margin of 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 0.5% but it won and that led to um congress eventually stepping in there was a renegotiation of some of the points that the no campaign had pointed to at the end the the people in the no campaign did not support the renegotiated agreement although many of the points were um, changed but not the main points that they insisted on which is that FARC leaders um, go to jail and that they do not participate in politics actively the leaders themselves not the party so those points remain the agreement and the no camp did not support the new negotiated agreement but congress did and more importantly the constitutional court supported the amendments that 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 enshrined the agreement in the colombian constitution including the creation of the special jurisdiction for peace it's really interesting to me that a rights issue played such a crucial role in this debate a human rights issue as you mentioned about gender equality mm-hmm. and i just wonder if it's when you have these kind of big political events if human rights issues are seen as quite polarizing when a country is trying to decide on how it should move out from conflict do you think that's well it depends if there's a lot of of social mobilization around certain rights 
or are uncertain issues. Interestingly, the right to peace is enshrined in the Colombian Constitution, it's Article 22 of the Constitution, and right after the no vote, there was there were huge marches, mostly students in the cities, and they mobilized around um, Article 22, the right to peace. So it depends if there's whether or not there's mobilization around this. Let's move on then to talk about the work of the Special Jurisdiction for Peace. What are the aims of the Special Jurisdiction and how will it achieve those aims? So um, the aims are really ambitious. And if you look at it, we have this planning um, declaration that actually most um, entities do, the mission and the vision. And So the mission and the vision say that, that the Special Jurisdiction for Peace aims at helping um, make peace a reality in Colombia. The way that it aims to do this, and that's enshrined in the Constitution, is by trying war criminals and bringing to light what happened. Um, it, it's The design of the jurisdiction is really complex, basically because it's learned from previous experiences both around the world and in Colombia. We already had a previous transitional justice process where we tried um, the paramilitary armies. So there's a lot of learning, and also um, because we're globally connected, there's learning from other experiences. There's a large literature evaluating transitional justice, mostly critiquing it. So the design itself is really complex, mostly because the designers try to respond to and to preempt possible critiques. And the result is, is just incredibly complex. So it's a jurisdiction, meaning it's a series of courts, but it's not focused on trials. It's focused on having um, war criminals uh, provide truth about their crimes, about what happened. So there's three pre-trial chambers, the justice chambers. Um, I'm in, in one of them. Um, there's an amnesty pretrial chamber, which provides basically amnesty for those crimes, mostly rebellion and crimes associated with rebellion, political crimes, which in the Colombian tradition have received amnesty for the last 200 years. And um, this is like bearing arms against a state and, uh, and minor crimes like theft. Um, if the theft is related to the financing of the revolution. and So there's the amnesty chambers. Then there's the rec- truth recognition chambers, which, like I said, it's a pretrial chamber, and the, the, the judges in it are, we are um, investigative judges or examining magistrates, I think is the, also the, the, the term in English. This is from the civil law tradition, so it's not um, as known in in the common law. It doesn't exist in the common law. In generally common law schools don't, don't teach it. But in the civil law tradition, criminal judges um, used to investigate the crimes before they went to trial. Um, over time, their powers have been limited in most countries, but they were brought again for the, this chamber, and basically what we do is we identify those cases that are most representative, we prioritize, and and we investigate them. And we call on the, the, the people who are responsible for them, 
um, uh, those most responsible is what the, 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 the law would say if you translated it. But this doesn't necessarily mean just the commanders. It could be a, a perpetrator who was responsible for a torture camp, for example, uh, even though he wouldn't be high up in the hierarchy. So it's not a hierarchical consideration, but rather a, a, in terms of making a decision-making uh, consideration. And we call on them to to accept, um, to recognize what they did and to provide truth. If they do and were satisfied that they did um, as to the best of their possibilities, um, then there's no trial. They're channeled directly for sentencing. And the sentencing is meant to be um, reparative. So victims are consulted on the sentencing. It's not... Um, It can't be jail, but it can be other forms of, of restriction of freedom, and it includes um, works destined for reparations. So the most obvious example is demining. They would get training and, and dedicate a maximum of eight years to this task of demining those um, places where there's, where there's actually still a lot of mines. But if they don't um, accept the conclusions of, of the chamber, then um, the case gets um, directed towards a prosecutor who decides if there's enough evidence to go to trial or not. And then there could be a regular trial with um, jail sentences that are still reduced. So um, it's maximum 20 years in jail. I just wonder if you think there might be any tensions between thinking about human rights considerations and the, the model of transitional justice or the approach um, to transitional justice, and whether sometimes they'll pull in different directions and how post-conflict procedures should try to mediate those, those tensions. In terms of human rights as, a fi as the, um, the struggle against impunity, so there's the usual trade-off between... Um, Jail as the, the form of punishment and, and, um, and truth. On the other hand, um, jail is pretty much a Western understanding of what punishment looks like. And we're also looking at, at traditional indigenous understandings of punishment and, uh, as the need to restore equilibrium in a, in a community and different ways of restoring equilibrium. And this includes uh, preparing um, former combatants and victims to live together again and participate in these forms of preparation that do signify atonement, and atonement is important, but not necessarily um, being locked away as the ideal form of atonement. So we are, although there's definitely... Um, Uh, a thirst um, in in part of the population for retributive justice, an eye for an eye. There's also the cultural um, instruments or baggage to to imagine, and that's part of our task to imagine other forms of of punishment or uh, of atonement, really, that would satisfy victims. So. Um, Victims of specific crimes have an important role to play in the jurisdiction. There's plenty of, of, of 
procedural instances where their voices are heard, where they can ask for evidence, provide evidence, comment on on the, what the the perpetrators have said. Um, uh, they can hand in reports. They get consulted on the on the penalties. So there's a lot of of new institutional designs that are meant to respond to the critiques, but they still have to work. I mean, we haven't seen them in action. The the court hasn't been. It started operation in March 2018, so it's pretty recent. We'll see in, in you know in 10 years whether or not this worked or not. I think what you've been describing goes really to the heart of the the special jurisdictions restorative justice model. Could you speak a little bit about what we mean when we talk about restorative justice and why the tribunal is focusing so much more on restorative justice than retributive justice? So we have that mandate, but there's no precise definition of restorative justice in the law. And when you look at efforts around the world and even in Colombia, they're really focused on crimes that are not as grave and on very specific crimes like theft or rape or uh, I don't think that there's that there's like um, for huge patterns of human rights violations experiences in restorative justice unless you can't think of Chasa courts. But um, even so, the most experienced of restorative justice, the perpetrators remain in jail, and restorative justice does not replace the, the, the punishment. So we have to be creative on what does it mean to generate satisfaction, because this is also about um, a transition to reconciliation. So what forms of, of, of justice would be restorative in the sense that, that it, it would allow us as a society to, to face new problems, I guess, instead of remaining tangled up in the older problems or in things of the past. So that's a huge challenge, and we're taking it step by step. So part of the initial step, for example, is that we've included in our investigation unit, not just the, the staples of, of criminal investigation of international crime, stuff like um, how did the military organization work, what orders, how did orders come, you know, tickle down the hierarchy, or what happened during the war, but we've also included as part of, 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 of our necessary criminal investigation, investigation on the harms and on victim perceptions of the harms and on how to understand what was the harm in order to lay a, a, a solid foundation for reparations. And what would come, if, if you understand the harm, then you might understand the type of measures that could constitute reparations. We also ask victims and perpetrators what they understand would, would um, work as restorative of, of the past. And there's interesting expressions. Um, I find it particularly compelling that the widow of this extraordinary man, the far kidnapped in, in, in 2001, called Guillermo Gaviria, he was the, the governor of the Antioquia province. He was a young man in his early 40s, and he was 
really committed to the use of nonviolence, a great admirer of Martin Luther King and Gandhi, and connected with the global nonviolence movement. They kidnapped him and uh, and uh, they killed him in a, in a rescue attempt by the Colombian army. But his widow, and it's really it's it's a heartbreaking love story. Um, his widow wants um, the perpetrators to receive training in nonviolence and to become nonviolence trainers themselves and to keep his memory alive. And she thinks that would be. Uh, restored. It's very great to have those perspectives brought into the um, to the consideration. Mm-hmm. Another a court-like body that has focused on restorative justice and addressing human rights violations was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or the TRC, mm-hmm. um, in South Africa, mm-hmm. which is focusing on addressing human rights violations committed under apartheid. Um, was the GRC model taken into account when the special jurisdiction was set up, or any lessons learned from its approach? Um, the the designers actually scanned uh, the different models, and of course, the South African model is a reference. Part of our design responds to the shortcomings of the many different models. What's yet to be seen is whether the new design actually addresses the shortcomings. So in terms of the South Africa Commission, um, we learned of about the power of public hearings to shape narratives. And we also learned about the care that is needed before creating, setting up a stage where there is a, a face-off or a com- direct confrontation between perpetrators and victims. And uh, we learned, as we have from most transitional justice process, that these processes are divisive and that, it, that they don't necessarily, as they are happening, create reconciliation, but it often seems as is. The opposite is um, uh, we learn of the power of victims' voices and the, the critique that's been um, probably a consensus or at least it's pretty general about the, the TRC is that it didn't have, uh, there was no actual punishment of any sort. So the, the designers separated the, our own, we have a truth commission, from the judicial proceedings in parallel. So we have both the Truth Commission and uh, the, the judicial proceedings, which is the special jurisdiction, and it's specifically concerned with criminal responsibility, whereas the Truth Commission wants to talk more about large-scale processes. And finally, let's think about the future. What challenges do you see um, for the peace process and the realization of human rights in Colombia and how does the special jurisdiction, how is it going to try and overcome those? So I think there are reasons for hope. And uh, the main one, for me at least, is that there's uh, an emerging consensus that spans both the far right and the far left and everybody in between that the Colombian state needs to be present in all of its territory. And critics have said that Colombia is a territory without a state in some parts. And uh, that it needs to be present not just as um, military force or police, 
but that it needs to be present as social services, as roads, as public schools, as health services, as markets, legal markets. Um, you know, you, you have to be able to buy a, 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 I don't know, a Band-Aid basically everywhere in the territory to be able to do that. So that's a general consensus. And it's not, it hasn't been an easy consensus to achieve, but I think that it's now pretty much established. And uh, the, the task is how to do that. And I think that we're all committed to finding ways of doing that. It has to be the state that, that reaches throughout the Colombian territory needs to be a state that is legitimate for the people who live there and that protects t traditional ways of life but that also brings the, the amenities of, of modernity and that protects the environment in a, in a country that's, that has enormous natural resources that are attractive for, for both um, legal and illegal enterprises. So the, the special jurisdiction is a very small part of the construction of a legitimate state, one that is able to to bring the satisfaction and to people in the ter in, especially in the distant territories. Well, this is what the former peace commissioner called the territorial peace, what it would entail to bring peace bec to, because the war in Colombia wasn't really centered in the cities and there are many mid-level cities in Colombia. It's not, there's Bogota, which is the capital, but there's actually an important number of mid-level cities. It was mostly carried out and mostly um, harmed uh, peasants living in, in internal frontiers. So how to bring the, a legitimate state, a social state of law, which is what our constitution says, And the special jurisdiction is, is a small part of that effort. It, it, it should be able to, to help close the wounds of the past and heal them. But that's just one part of, of a much larger process. Judge Lamentra, thank you so much for your insight into this. It's really fascinating and it's great to hear about the work of the, of the special jurisdictions. Thank you for having me, Natasha. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Rights Up is brought to you by the Oxford Human Rights Hub. Our executive producer is Kira Allman. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Natasha Holcroft Emmis. Music for this series is by Rosemary Allman, and Sarah Dobby does our show notes. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you like to listen to your favorite podcasts.